science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about courage. Specifically, the courage it takes to stand up for yourself or to have the confidence and the strength to be that person that you truly want to be. Our first story today is from Margaret Rubega. It was recorded in October 2018 at Real Artways in Hartford, Connecticut, at our show in partnership with the University of Connecticut's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and Public Discourse Project. The theme that night was intellectual humility. I am standing with my back against a tree and I'm surrounded by this circle of kids who have taken my book from me and they're laughing and tossing it hand to hand just outside of my reach. I'm five years old. My knees are bigger around than my thighs are. There's a little drop of sweat inching down under the bangs that my mom cut too short. And my little round plastic rainbow glasses have slid halfway down my nose. I really, really want these kids to leave me alone. And I really, really need my book back. Finally, somebody shifts sideways and there's a break in the circle and I bolt for the house because my dad's in there. My dad's going to help me get this book back. My dad is the classic, you know, up from nothing success story kind of a guy. Italian immigrant parents. His mom died when he was two from tuberculosis. And after he got out of the Navy post-World War II, he put himself through college on the GI Bill. And then got a full-time job, and while accumulating eight kids, got himself a PhD in acoustics. Now, at this point, I don't actually know what a PhD is, but I'm pretty sure he's the smartest guy in the world. When he comes home at the end of the day, he walks in, he kisses my mom, and then he goes, Where's my little angel? He kept the Blackstone, Massachusetts accent all the way through all that education. I run in, he picks me up, we sit down together, he puts me on his lap and we read the newspaper, mainly so that he can tell my mom again how I finished the front page before he did. So I know, he understands why I need this book back. He's going to help me get the book back. I run up to him and I go, Dad, Daddy, these kids, they took my book. They're laughing and teasing me and they won't give it back and I need my book. And he looks down at me and he shakes his head and he says, that's not nice. That's not nice at all. And then he says to me, 
you know what I want you to do? He puts out his hand, palm up, puts out his other finger like he's pointing at the sky and like he's chopping wood with the finger in the hand, he says to me, I want you to go out there and tell them who you are. I just look at him, I, I, don't, I don't get it. He leans over a little more and he does it again. I want you to go out there and tell them who you are. I look up at him and I blink and I blink and I, and I try to swallow. He, he's not going to help me. He's not going to help me get the book back. Tell them who you are. So I turn around and I go back outside. And I bend down and I pick up a rock. <laughs> the kid who took my book in the first place is out in the middle of the lawn prancing around, flapping my book up and down. And I walk up to him. And my knuckles already hurt, but I squeeze the rock a little bit tighter. And I say to him, give me my book back or I'm going to hit you with this. And he stops prancing. And he looks me up and down and he smiles. And I stare at him right in the eyes. And very slowly his smile fades. And then he holds the book out and says, geez, I was just kidding. And I take it from him, and because I'm not sure that my knees are going to hold me anymore, I sit right down on the lawn with it. After that, I don't get less scared. But whether he says it out loud to me or I just hear it in my head every time, it's take this hand and this finger and tell them who you are. When we move mid-year, mid-school year, I get the sixth grade teacher, the six-foot-tall guy, the only male teacher I've ever had, the one who whips the chalkboard eraser at boys who are fooling around. Every time he shouts, I flinch. And one day, he asks me to go up to the board and do a long division problem. So I get up there. And I hate the way chalk feels in my sweaty hand, but I squeak it out very slowly, carefully, meticulously, one step at a time, just like Sister Agnes showed us back in October. And I turn around, and he looks at the board, and he says, Jesus, that's not new math. You couldn't make that problem any longer. And the bell rings, and I pick up my stuff, and I walk out. And the next morning, I inform my parents that I am not going back to school until I can be in somebody else's class. I got through two whole books while they were talking to the principal. And then they stuck me in an empty classroom with the teacher. And he said to me, I wasn't making fun of you. 
I was just pointing out to the other students how complete your problem was, how completely you had worked it out. And I just stared at him, looked him in the eyes, blue, a little bloodshot. And he cocked his head to one side and he looked at me and he said, you're tougher than you look. And I said, only when I have to be. So by the time I get to college, I have figured out why I like reading books while sitting up in trees. And I'm taking every biology class I can get into. And I'm thrilled, just thrilled, when I get a work-study job. Skinning birds for study specimens for the school collection. Now, now this is the first thing I have ever done in my life, the first physical thing that I seem to be able to do instinctively, effortlessly, effortlessly better than other people. My hands just seem to know how to get it done, to separate the skin from the bones and the muscle underneath. And what's inside is complex and fascinating and beautiful. So I'm sitting hunched over a bird on the bench. And the professor who I work for comes up behind me and puts his hands on my shoulders a little low. And he's a guy with a really bushy mustache. He leans over and he says to me, how's it going here? And I swear to God, I can feel the mustache brushing the hair on the top of my head. And I just hunch over the bird and I go, fine, everything's fine. And when I go to leave, he goes to pat me on the back, but he puts his hand on the back of my neck and he leaves it there until I step away with my arms prickling. Go back to the dorm and have a really long shower and start thinking about applying for a work-study job at the dining hall. But I'm halfway through an owl. I can't just leave an owl. So I go back the next day, and I'm just sewing the bird up it's the last step. And he comes up behind me again, puts his hands back on my shoulders. I can feel his belt buckle in the small of my back. And I straighten my back up so that his hands fall off my shoulders, and I raise my hands up out of the bird. Still bloody. One palm up. One finger pointing at the ceiling. And I say, please don't touch me. There's no reason for you to touch me. And he backs up, and he never touches me again. Now, by the time I get out of college and do a couple of years of field work, my knees are no longer bigger than my thighs, and I've learned how to blow dry my hair and I'm dating this really sexy cop. <laughs> He's got these brown curls and this tight muscular body and this cleft in the middle of his chin. Everybody likes him, and I touch him a lot. And we're sitting in his car outside my parents' house, 
when I tell him that I've decided to apply to biology graduate schools and that it's going to mean moving to wherever I can get in because that's how biology graduate school works. And he says to me, well, why don't you marry me instead? And I say, why instead? And he says, well, because I can't follow you around. And you can't go on being a biologist after we have kids. I take my hand off of him. And I say, I am going to be a biologist. And I'm not sure I'm going to have kids. When I go in the house, my dad's the only one up. He's sitting at the table in the kitchen. And I sit down and I tell him that me and the sexy cop have broken up. And I tell him why. He shakes his head. And he says, you can't keep breaking up with men over this biology business. <laughs> Who's going to take care of you? I'm stunned. And then, instantly, I can feel pressure behind my eyeballs and my heartbeat in the palms of my hands. And I think, are you fucking kidding me? All these years, all this screwing up my courage, and standing up for myself because you told me to. Do you really think that I need somebody to take care of me? But I don't say it. He must have seen it in my face, though, because when I look back at him, finally, his eyes are full of tears. And I watch him. He swallows, and then he swallows. And then he says to me, I just want you to be safe. And just like that, I'm not mad anymore. See, at this point, I do not know about science what my dad, the kid of the chicken farmer who has a PhD, knows about science. And what he knows is that science is a contact sport. It's not about feeling smart. It's about fielding your ideas, and then your teachers and your peers try as hard as they can to knock you on your ass to see if you'll get up again. And at this point, I have no idea how hard I'm going to fall, and how often, and how hard it's going to be to keep getting back up. But I can see in his face. He's scared for me. I finally get it. He has always just been scared for me. So I take this hand, and I take this finger, and I say to him, I'm going to take care of myself. Thank you. That was Margaret Rubega. Margaret is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut. 
She is the Connecticut State Ornithologist, which personally I find very impressive. And as such, she's had to counsel a lot of homeowners about whether woodpeckers are eating their houses. They aren't, she says. And talk to a lot of journalists. Hoping to get better at it, she has taught science communication and writing classes along with biology classes for the last 10 years. And she currently leads a National Science Foundation-funded research group studying methods of training graduate science students to talk and write for non-scientists. You can find her on Twitter at Prof Rubega. Our executive director, Liz Neely, and I went up to UConn last June and led a three-day workshop with folks from Margaret's group at UConn. And we had a truly magical time. And afterwards, Margaret asked me, is it always this magical? And I was like, to be honest, kind of. <laughs> I mean, they were a really fantastic group with amazing stories. But anytime you get folks to dedicate a block of time like that, to developing and sharing their stories with people that they may have known for years but who have never heard their stories before. It's a magical thing. If that sounds like the kind of magic that you need in your life, you can find out more about our workshop program at storyclider.org workshops. Our next story today is from Charlotte Estense Tamblin. It was recorded in October 2018 at Pie and in Manchester, UK, as part of a show we produced for the Manchester Science Festival in partnership with Science Girl. The theme that night was Women in Science. My story starts, I think, where everyone's story starts when you're a child. And I think I remember being given a chemistry set by my father. I don't think it would pass the health and safety requirements of today because I remember very clearly um, him helping me to make copper sulfate crystals. Um, I don't know if there was actually acid in the, bo in the box that came with it, but you know. He also showed me a, um, a periodic table and I remember very, very clearly my eyes flitting down to elements 92 and 94. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the periodic table, I'm just going to leave that one with you. Um, and I found, I found that inside me, a, uh, there was a bit of a spark, a bit of a fire started to burn for science. But as I went through school, I was unfortunately very easily influenced, and I, I didn't really put a lot of work in, because of course it's not cool to work hard. But also I didn't want to not work, so I managed to find a happy medium of doing as little work as possible. Um, and as I got a bit older, this developed into pure out-and-out -out laziness. Um, I'm not proud of it, but it is what it is. So I get to my teenage years, and I'm very lazy at this point, and I'm not putting much work in. But as I got to my GCSEs, I did study quite hard for them. I could have studied more, but, you know, I put, I put some work in. But three weeks before my exams, um, my parents split up. And my, my dad was very unhappy living with my mum, and he left. 
But even so, it was just before my exams and I had to get on with it. So I went and did my exams and I got, I got a reasonable result, a little bit above average, double B in science, GCSE, so did something right. But the problem is, is that now I had to do my A-levels and I had to do my A-levels without the academic because slowly but surely I was learning how to hate him. And he, he wasn't there and I didn't want to call him. So I had my mum who, she's Polish, she didn't really know much about the English education system and she was no scientist. So I got stuck into three A-levels, computing, chemistry, and physics. And I absolutely failed at chemistry. Um, in fact, I quit after the first year with the agreement with my tutor that this was most decidedly not the subject for me. Um, I dragged myself through physics, and... Um, I blew all of my exams. In fact, when my results came through, three A-levels, three results, they spelt out a word, E-N-D, end. So what's to do? I went to work, and I shut myself into a prison. Not a prison made of concrete and metal and guards, no. It was a prison made of mobile phones, sales targets, conference calls, and all the other hellish things that come with phone-related retail. Um, and that was, became my life. I wasn't happy. I filled my life up by spending money I didn't have and making friends with people who contributed nothing to my life and um, dating people who didn't really care about me. And that was my life. And the fire was really, really going out. There was virtually nothing left inside. And then when I found out that a girl that I'd been dating had been cheating on me repeatedly and I had just accept her, accepted her meager explanations instead of calling bullshit on it, um, something happened inside me and I decided I want to go traveling. I had a credit card and a really, really stupid idea armed with a credit card, a passport, and no idea what I was doing, I walked into a travel agent and said, I'd like a ticket to New York, please. No hotel, no nothing. I figured that out by phoning New York, and um, as you do. And um, I went, and it was amazing. It was wonderful. I felt so alive. The, the the brightness of the city that I was crying my eyes out on top of the Empire State Building, looking at this wonderful place. Um, I sat with a storming hangover on Liberty Island and shakily wrote some postcards. I took a selfie of myself with an old film camera. I looked so cross. Um, the one thing that I remember most about New York City is it stinks. It smells so bad. 
But to me, that smell was amazing. It was a smell of freedom. Not the American dream, Star Spangled Banner freedom, but a personal freedom. And the fire burnt brightly. But all too soon, the trip was over. I didn't have any money. This was all on credit card, and you know, I couldn't stay there forever. And so I came home and went back to the old life of selling phones and just existing. And down went the fire. And then shortly after a trip to Spain to see some family, I met somebody and we started a relationship. And in hindsight now, this was not a good idea because there were red warning flags all over that from day one. Um, she would, um, she slowly diminished my relationships with my friends and I ended up just staying at home and facilitating her living her life while I just sort of dragged myself along. And I started to get quite bitter because I was surrounded, I was meeting people in my job selling phones who were off traveling the world and studying and all the other great things, and I hated them for it. It was a tangible bitterness that existed inside me. I loathed them. And then when friends of mine would go and do the same thing, I hated them too, because I couldn't do those things. In a last-ditch attempt to try and make something of this life, I applied for a job for a promotion. Um, and the idea was to get the manager's job in the town where I lived. And they didn't give me that. They offered me a job in a town 40 miles away. Same job, but just miles and miles away. I was angry because I was really at the bottom of the pile now. And I had a shouting match with the head of recruitment for this phone company in a regional manager's conference in front of everybody. And after we... But in all fairness, he shouted back as well. It wasn't just one way. <laughs> we both argued. So after a little while, we both cooled down and I went back and spoke to him again. And that was when I truly gave up because I just slumped my shoulders and said, tell me about this job. And at that moment, I knew there was nothing I could get from this. This was, this was it. So I went and... I found that not only was there no fire, but I was surrounded by darkness, a complete miserable darkness that if I stretched out my hand, I couldn't see it anymore. And if you're in that kind of darkness with no reference points, there's a name for that, you're lost. And if there's, no, if there's no way you can turn on a light, you need someone to do it for you. And that someone was quite unexpected because 
it took the form of a rather scruffy emo girl who walked into the shop and we talked. She was looking for a job. I, I needed a member of staff and um, myself and my assistant manager interviewed her and she gave a good interview. Even to this day, she says she blagged it. But, um, and suddenly I found myself feeling something inside and I wasn't used to it because as we spent time together and as a little friendship started to develop, I felt happy. But the happiness was tempered because I couldn't get out of my prison and I knew there was no getting out of it. And time went on and we, our friendship got a little bit closer and I can leave how close it got to your imagination. Um, and then at the end of... Towards the end of a year, I'd tried to leave my, the relationship I was in, but I couldn't. I ended up going back. You hear stories about, you know, abused partners going back. And if you've never been in that situation... You often think to yourself, oh my goodness, how on earth could you go back? I get it now. I can't explain how I get it, but I, I get it. I understand, because I don't know why I went back, but I did. Until one night, she found out that me and this girl had been talking. Oh, there was no evidence of any kind of relationship beyond friendship, but even so... And she got really angry. And I went to bed that night afraid. For the first time in my life, I was truly afraid. So I thought I have to escape. And escape is not too strong a word. I have to get out of this. So they're lying there in the middle of the night, hearing her stamping around the house. I made a plan. And the plan was, when she dropped me off at the station the next morning and then would go to work, I would get in a taxi and come back to the house because I had some money, which was quite rare at that point. And, um, but it was so hard to get back into that taxi. It was so hard to miss the train. It was so hard to get in the cab to go back to the house. And then it was hard to gather my things together. It was hard to call my mum and say, please, can you bring the car around? I've got to get out of here. And somehow, somehow I managed it. But I was even afraid of taking things that were mine. I left with the minimal amount of stuff. It's quite a good way of having a clear out. Um, so I was out. It took a long time to get over what she did to me. And I'm still getting over it. 
But that was okay, because now there was a new life involved. And we, me and this woman who was my friend, we started seeing each other properly. We made it official. Of course, we were still working together, so I had to keep it quiet um, in work. But we started traveling. And the first trip we took, we went to, we traveled all the way up Poland, my sort of my, half my heritage, and visited Chernobyl as well, which was just amazing. And then the fire was back in my life. But something was tempering it. Something was stopping it from burning. But it was only after we got married and traveled all the way around the world. And we were stopping off in New Zealand and we ticked off so many bucket list entries. And, you know, had a drink in the Green Dragon in Hobbiton. I got back and I thought, I know what I have to do. And so one morning I woke up and I said to her, I said, I want to go back to school. And she said, why? I said, I want to study chemistry. She said, what for? I said, I'd like to teach it. And she said, well, go do it then, and rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, fine, I'll go and do it. Um, I found an access course. I discovered that access courses exist. And I resat my maths GCSE, and very quickly I thought, I'm going to get the best I can get. So I'm going to get an A at my maths, and I'm going to get 45 out of 45 distinctions at my access course. And I did, and I got it. And in doing so, we had to look at universities. And it was a visit to Loughborough University, and I said, could I study radiochemistry as part of my master's? And they said, no, you'll need to go to Manchester for that. So I text my wife and I said, they say I'll need to go to Manchester. Four minutes later, a text came back saying, I've booked us on the open day. Um, and so they demanded, of course, it's Manchester, they demanded the very best grades that I could deliver. And that's what I gave them. And we moved to Manchester. And I study chemistry, and I've never been happier. Thank you. That was Charlotte Estes Tamblin. Charlotte, or Charlie to her friends, is a second-year undergrad student at the University of Manchester, working toward a master's in chemistry. She hopes to develop a deeper understanding of radiochemistry before moving into teaching at the academic level. Outside of university, she enjoys roller derby and traveling with her wife wherever they are able to. Speaking of which, for a photo of Charlie embracing her wife just after she stepped off stage of the show, please see our episode page at storyclider.org. It will make you feel like someone in the vicinity is chopping onions, I guarantee it. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. 
The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Toria Stafford, Fiona Calvert, Zach Stovall, and me, Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwyn Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Pie and Ale and Real Artways for hosting these shows and to all the storytellers who have the courage to share their stories on our stage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>